Well, there are many things I love about our church, but uh, one of them is all of those little people that just went down to Children's Church. Our, the Lord has blessed us in great ways with a lot of young families, and uh, it's really special for us to be able to have a part in the lives of these children as they grow up and learn to know more about God and learn to more, know more about Jesus Christ. Let me encourage you to take your Bibles this morning. We are going to start in Acts chapter 2, so if you would turn there first, Acts chapter 2, and then we'll eventually make our way to John chapter 7, and our text for today is verses 14 through 24 of John chapter 7. Well, if you've been with us uh, over the course of the past couple of months as we've poured over John chapter 6, and then last week taking a careful look at the beginning of John chapter 7, it would be very difficult to have missed the emphasis that Jesus placed on the sovereign will of God. First, that he unequivocally came to the earth to do the specific will of God the Father who sent him. Second, that God is sovereign over all things, including the salvation of the souls of men. It's God who draws sinful man to himself and sovereignly extends his grace to whomever he wishes. And then third, that God is sovereign over the timing of which all things will transpire. And so there's no mistaking that Jesus operated in accordance with the Father's will and the Father's timeline. And he reiterates that fact over and over here in the Gospel of John. When God the Father sent God the Son to the earth, there was a foreordained timeline by which Jesus was to operate within. Only in the appointed time was Jesus to fully reveal himself as the Messiah and suffer the consequences of such a claim, which would end in his arrest and his subsequent death. But as we've seen so far in our study of the Gospel of John, that time has not yet arrived. Last week, we noted that there was a sizable six-month gap between chapter 6 and 7. And we know this because of the timeline of the feasts. But with the help of the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, we know that during those six months that Jesus was not inactive. He was actively performing various miracles. He was spending huge chunks of time with those who would be named as his apostles. But as we begin today... I want to be very clear about something that is very important, because Jesus has been so forthright about the sovereignty of God. And so there is no mistaking that God is 100% sovereign over all things. But at the very same time, each of us and every other person whom God has created is 100% responsible for our sin and our actions. And so you might ask the question, Pastor Dave, how can that be? If God is sovereign and everything is foreordained and there's a predetermined plan, we know that Deuteronomy 29, 29 says it this way, the secret things uh, of God are separate from those that are revealed. And so if God is 100% sovereign over all things, all things, how can it be that man is still yet responsible for our sin and for our actions? And that is a good question, and it's one that Christians have wrestled with for millennia. 
But that's exactly what the Bible teaches. And this is called an antinomy. An antinomy. J.I. Packer, in his book Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, describes the existence of both divine sovereignty and human responsibility as an antinomy. An antinomy exists, he said, when a pair of principles stand side by side, seemingly irreconcilable, and yet both are undeniable. And so why is that important? Why is it important that we understand that both, yes, God is sovereign, but man is responsible? Why is that so important? Because the Bible does not teach fatalism or what is called fatalistic determinism, that everything has been predetermined, and so there is no need to evangelize, there's no need to pray, there's no need to be obedient to the Lord, because it's all been predetermined. God has a sovereign plan, a sovereign decree, it's all going to go according to His plan. And yes, we believe that, but we also see in Scripture that man is responsible to God. Man is responsible to turn to Jesus Christ in faith. Man is responsible to be obedient to the commands of God. And while God is sovereign, man is responsible. So God is 100% sovereign. Man is 100% culpable for his sin and responsible to turn to faith in Jesus Christ. And the truth of the Bible is that God is sovereign and yet man will be held fully responsible. We see an example of this antinomy here in Acts chapter 2, and this is why I ask you to turn to Acts chapter 2 first. I mentioned this uh, a few weeks back, but I want to read it to you, and I want you to see this antinomy. Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 23. This man, referring to Jesus, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Now, let me just say, because I mentioned Acts chapter 2, 23 and 24 when we were talking about foreknowledge. Foreknowledge does not mean that God looked out into the future and seen who would choose him, and he chooses them on that basis. There is an aspect of foreordination with this idea of foreknowledge. There's an aspect of pre-knowing personally in a relational way. And we see that here, don't we? This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, paired together. Now notice here, so he talks about the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, but then we see this antinomy revealed. So all of this happened, ultimately Jesus will go to the cross, he will die in the place of sinners, that has been predetermined before the annals of history, before the creation and the foundation of the world, this will happen in real time, Jesus will come to the earth, he will die in the place of sinners, man will be 100% responsible to believe in what Jesus has done on the cross of Calvary, but they're also, man is also responsible for his actions. So within this predetermined plan, notice here, you, meaning these people, nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. 
But God raised him up again, putting an agony, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. So Jesus would go to the cross. This was predetermined. We've seen in the Gospel of John that Jesus came to do the will of the Father, right? What's the will of the Father? To come and to redeem all those whom the Father has given to the Son. And so Jesus comes to the earth to die in the place of all those whom the Father has given to him, and he'll not lose a single one, right? So that is going to happen, and it did happen. And it happened according to God's sovereign plan, his sovereign decree. That all happened. But it doesn't mean that the people that put Jesus to death are not held responsible for that. It doesn't mean that all of those people who did not believe in Christ, who see Christ, who watched him perform miracles, that they are not responsible for their unbelief. You see the antinomy. God is sovereign, but man is responsible. And so the Bible does not teach fatalism. I've talked to some over the years, few, but some who are inactive as it relates to sharing their faith. Well, why would I take the time to go and to share my faith or to give the gospel to somebody? They're either going to get saved or they're not. If God is sovereign, they'll get saved or they won't get saved. What does it matter? Why should I spend time in prayer? If God has a predetermined plan, then what's the value of prayer? Have you ever talked to anybody that that has this view? This is totally antithetical to Scripture. Somehow, and I, I don't know how, and I can't explain it. I can just tell you what the Bible says. But somehow, within God's decree, within God's plan and His will, prayer matters. How can it matter if God has a predetermined plan? Well, His ways are much higher than our ways. If you get God completely 100% figured out, let me know. I need your help. We all need your help. But somehow, within God's plan, man is responsible. We're responsible not just to be obedient to what God says, which that's all part of it. We're to pray without ceasing. We're to constantly have a God awareness where we're constantly thinking about God and how this is going to impact Him. And and, and prayer is our will coming in conformity with His will. And so all through Scripture, we find the people of God praying. We find Jesus praying, who is God. And yet Jesus prays to the Father, the great high priestly prayer. How can all this be? I am not 100% sure. But God is big enough and powerful enough and sovereign enough for all this to come together in a nice, neat package. And you know what? We are responsible. We are responsible. We are held responsible. Why would we stand before Jesus and give an account of our life if it didn't matter what we did? Because God has it all predetermined. That's not how it works. Each and every one of us will stand before Christ at the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ, and will give an account for how we've lived our lives. We cannot blame God for our inactivity and our sin. God is not the author of sin. 
God did not make Adam and Eve sin in the garden. They volitionally sinned. They didn't have a sin nature, remember. They were not created with a sin nature. They were created in a peccable fashion, whereas they, they could have lived forever. They were able not to sin. But we are not able not to sin because we are totally depraved. And so within that depravity, we see the sovereign hand of God, but we see the responsibility of man to believe in Jesus Christ. And when all that comes together, that's God's design. So with all that in mind, and it's important that we understand that, and we, we see the distinct, so much emphasis has been placed on the sovereignty of God. And rightly so. God is sovereign. There's no mistaking it. You cannot read Scripture and come to the conclusion that God is not sovereign. He is. But man is responsible. And so with that in mind, let's go to our passage in John chapter 7. So all of this is foundational, and I thought very important for us to at least see this antinomy because Jesus is about to hold these people responsible for their actions and their words, And yes, God is sovereign, but all of them will give an account, including us. So let me read our passage here for this morning. It's John 7, beginning with verse 14, and we'll go down through verse 24 today. Verse 14, but when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews then were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? And so Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but it is his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? And the crowd answered and said, You have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? And Jesus answered them, I did one deed, and you all marvel. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it's from Moses, but from the fathers. In other words, circumcision didn't start with Moses. It predated Moses. With the, in the era of the patriarchal fathers. And so that's his point there. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses will not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So in this narrative, and, and we're, we're, we're moving along in the story, there's five certainties here that I want to give you. Five certainties. And the first one is that Jesus' credentials were questioned. And we see this here in verse 14 and following, but when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. And the Jews were then astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, had never been educated? And so Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. 
So let me bring you back up to speed because this is a continuing story. Jesus was up in the Sea of Galilee region. He was performing miracles. He's teaching in the synagogue. And while the people were absolutely 100% fascinated with him, many of them were becoming very wary of his claims. And it was about the time of the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booze, and we talked about what that was and what that celebration was all about last week. And this was all taking place in Jerusalem, which is in the heart of Judea. And so folks were beginning to flock to Jerusalem for the celebration. And knowing this, Jesus' biological half-brothers urged Jesus to go down to the feast to make a big splash and to show the masses what he can do. Jesus tells his brothers that it's not yet time for that, meaning that it's not yet time for him to publicly reveal himself as the Messiah in plain language. Remember, Jesus was still using figures of speech, describing himself as the bread of life or, or the living bread. And so the brothers leave for Jerusalem. And when they arrive, there's this buzz about Jesus among the people. Jesus is the hot topic of conversation. Some are saying he's a good man. Others are saying he's a big deceiver. And it's at this time that Jesus then decides that he will indeed head down to Jerusalem, but he's going to do so secretly or discreetly because he knew that there were those who wanted to kill him. And so this is where we pick up the narrative here. It's literally in the middle of the Feast of Booze, and Jesus decides to go up to the temple, and he begins to teach the people. And you wonder if his appearance there caught the authorities off guard, perhaps because several days had passed. It's the middle of the Feast of Booze, and they hadn't yet seen Jesus. Maybe they thought that he wasn't going to make an appearance. Maybe they thought he wasn't going to make it. He wasn't going to be there. But then all of a sudden, Jesus shows up in the temple, the most visible place in Jerusalem. My guess is because there were still so many people who were enamored with Jesus that the authorities didn't arrest him. I think there was this let's wait and see environment. Let's, let's hear what he has to say. And so Jesus is teaching in the temple, and people are blown away at his knowledge. And they're asking, how is this man so learned? Because they knew he hadn't attended any of the prominent rabbinical schools. And when they began to ask him about this, he says that his teaching is not his own. It's not my own. It's directly from the Father who sent me to the earth. Every chance that Jesus gets, he wants the people to know that he and the Father are tied together, which is exactly what he'll say in John chapter 10 and verse 30 when he says that he and the Father are one. And so this leads us to the second certainty, and it's this, that Jesus' challenge is authentic. Jesus' challenge is authentic. Verse 17, if anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. So while Jesus was willfully submissive to the Father while he was on the earth, here we have another reference of him putting himself on the same level as the Father. He says about his teaching that whether it is of God or himself, in other words, he and the Father are the same in essence 
and are about the same truth. Jesus would later say in John 17, verses 17 through 19, he would say, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into this world, I have also sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Truth matters. There's actually a conference every year, usually out in California, by that name, Truth Matters. What a novel idea. Truth matters. Kathy and I still talk about this to this day. Unlike our other kids, and whenever I say that, my kids immediately look up. Our son Matt would always tell the truth. It didn't matter if what he did was going to get him in huge trouble. He would always tell us the truth. I mean, Amanda would come into the room crying and Kathy would say, what, what's, what's going on? And she would be crying and trying to get it out. And we knew who the problem was. <laughs> so we call Matt in from the other room and we say, okay, what happened? And inevitably he would say, well, I smacked her in the head. She was saying this or that, and I didn't like it, so I smacked her upside the head. I hit her pretty hard, too. <laughs> I mean, most people would try to at least get out of it somehow, but with him, he was so unique that he would literally tell the truth, and he knew he was going to get in trouble. And yet he would still tell us the truth. I mean, from the time he was a toddler and could speak until the time that he left our home, most of the time, as far as I can tell, (laughs) he was truthful and honest. Even if it was going to cost him. You see, God is a God of truth. Truth matters. It doesn't just matter from him to us. It matters from us to him, and it matters from us to each other. Truth is central to the life of the Christian. It is absolutely central. Jesus' heart is that people would know the truth. He would later identify himself as the truth in John 14, 6, when he will say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Years ago, I was asked to preach the baccalaureate service for the graduating seniors of Anvil Cleona High School, and all I was told was to preach a message that will help the students as they enter adulthood. And so with that in mind, I entitled my message, What Every Graduate Needs to Know as They Enter Adulthood. So I chose John 14 and verse 6 as my text, and here was my outline. The first thing I told them that they need to know is that Jesus is the way. He's the only way. There aren't many ways to eternal life. There's just one way. Jesus is the exclusive way. 
Second, Jesus is the truth. He is truth, and his word is truth. And I'm just here as a representative to tell you what's true. And by the way, let's just stick with the truth. If we love people, we'll tell them the truth, no matter how hard it is. The truth about Christ, the truth about their sin, the truth of God's word. And then third, Jesus is the life. Jesus came to the earth to offer life, eternal life, abundant life. And so that's what you need to know as you graduate and enter adulthood. And that's all any of us need to know. Folks, need, people need the truth of God. The most loving thing that we can do for people is to tell them the truth. We have the truth. Can you imagine if there was a disease that was rampant in society and it's going here and there and everywhere and there is someone over here who has the antidote for what's going on and he just keeps it in. He doesn't share what will help people. And I've been thinking a lot more about this, especially because things are getting weird and we're seeing all these crazy things being said by people. It's almost like they're looking at the Bible and whatever the opposite is, that's what they want to say. People need the truth. People need to know what is true. And Jesus is in the temple teaching the people truth. But notice what he says here. He essentially challenges his listeners to humbly embrace the truth that he's teaching. And if they do, they will realize that what he is teaching is true. And as they repent of their sin and seek to do the will of the Father, they will acknowledge the truth. And this process of enlightenment or illumination is a work of the Holy Spirit of God. It is God the Spirit who opens sinners' eyes to how God's truth applies to them. And this leads us to the third certainty, and we find it here in verse 18, and it is Jesus cared only to glorify the Father. Verse 18, He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. And so Jesus is teaching here about selflessness and humility. And he shares with the people that he doesn't seek any glory for himself. He only seeks to glorify the Father who sent him, who as we know is true. And there is no unrighteousness in him at all. So to glorify God is to magnify God to honor him with praise and worship because God is glorious. He is great. He is magnificent. We sang of the glories of who God is this morning. How great is our God? We throw around all these terms in society. Great. This guy played baseball and he's the greatest ever. Okay. Okay. This guy played basketball, and he's the greatest ever. In athletic circles, it's the GOAT, right? G-O-A-T, the greatest of all time. Well, we throw these words around. We sang the last song, you are amazing. How many times have you heard the word amazing used about all these things? (laughs) There is only one who is truly great, 
And there is only one who is truly amazing. And it is our God. And so to glorify Him is to magnify Him. It's, it's, it's to uh, recall His greatness and His magnificence. Because He's holy and righteous. And He alone is worthy to receive glory and adoration and thanksgiving and praise. And as the people of God, we are to seek to bring glory to God in everything we do. I think we often forget this. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. If you're in school, then you are to be the best student you can be for the glory of God. If you are a parent, you are to be the best parent you can be for the glory of God. Think about what this means. We are to have a God awareness at every moment of our lives. In other words, we should be asking ourselves, how can we glorify God in whatever it is that we're doing? This goes to our work ethic, our moral values, our love, our care, our concern for others, how we raise our kids, how we generously give our, of our finances to the Lord's work. And on and on we can go. We are to seek to bring glory to God in everything that we do. So I love this here in verse 18. This is the type of humility that we should seek to emulate and the humility that Jesus modeled when he was on the earth. In fact, Philippians 2, 5 through 8 says just that, have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, as he already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant, literally a slave, and being born in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Jesus is God, but he humbled himself by condescending to come to the earth, to do the will of the Father, and to die in the place of all who the Father has given to him. And so we ask the question, do we desire to have the same heart of humility as Christ? And I mentioned this before, but I'll never forget this, honestly. There was this guy who fancied himself as the most spiritual man in the church. I mean, just ask him. He came up to me one time, and he goes, I'm the most humble guy you'll ever meet. Really? I'm the most humble guy you'll ever meet, Pastor Dave. Thank you for letting me know. That, my friends, is seeking glory for yourself not the Lord. And this brings us to the fourth certainty, and it's that Jesus contests their motives. Jesus contests their motives. There's one thing we've learned about Jesus. He'll just say it, right? Look at verse 19. So he's engaging with these people. They're saying all this stuff. Listen to what he says in verse 19. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon who seeks to kill you. So Jesus flips the script and he asks them a very cutting question to show their hypocrisy. He's, 
You see, there was a stark difference between Jesus and these self-righteous, proud people. And so Jesus asked them if indeed Moses had given them the law, which of course he did as an agent of God. And so they all agree on this, right? And then Jesus asked them, if that's the case, then why aren't you following it perfectly? You see, here's where the, the, the rub was with Jesus and these people. They were all very pharisaical about the law. Don't mess with the law. The law is our standard for everything. And so if that's the case, Jesus asked, then why aren't you following it perfectly? You see, that was the purpose of the law, right? God gave the law through Moses so he could show the people that they could not keep it perfectly. The law was and is the great exposer of the sinful condition of man. There is none righteous, not even one. The law ultimately pointed to Christ who alone could provide atonement for sin. (coughs) The law was just a placeholder to eventually lead to the finished work of Christ. Paul addresses this with the church at Rome in Romans 8.3, and he says this, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. And so the purpose of the law was to expose the sin of the people and to point them to Christ. And he was right in front of them. And so by refusing to answer, it's an obvious thing that all their eggs were in the basket of the law, which, as Jesus pointed out, they could not keep. And so as usually happens when folks are called out on their sin, they begin to start to name call. So they yell out, you have a demon! You're (laughs) demon-possessed! You have a demon! And then they sarcastically say, who seeks to kill you? Well, this leads us then to Jesus' answer and our fifth certainty And it's number five, Jesus calls out their hypocrisy. And look at verse 21. Jesus answered them, I did one deed, and you all marvel. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses will not be broken? Are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. And we would do well to soak that last sentence in. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. This is starting to get good, isn't it? Jesus is about to give them an example of their blatant hypocrisy. And by the way, hypocrisy is pretending to be something that you're not. Or saying that you're something that you're not. Hypocrites like to hold other people to a standard that they themselves do not hold to. For instance, let's just say the boss at work tells his employees that they're to be on time for work because that's what's right. Anything less is cheating the company. But he or she shows up late to work every day, takes two-hour lunches, 
double standard. One standard for the boss, another for the employees. That's hypocrisy. Jesus says here, I did one deed and you all marvel. He's referring to his healing of the sick man at the pool of Bethesda, which he did on the Sabbath, which they viewed as working on the Sabbath, which was forbidden. And we looked at this back in John chapter 5, where Jesus explained to them their misinterpretation of the intent of the law. And so Jesus gives them an example of their hypocrisy. He says, well, let's take circumcision for an example. Every baby boy was to be circumcised on the eighth day after their birth. Okay? It didn't matter if the eighth day was on the Sabbath or not. He was to be circumcised. And so Jesus reasons that if they are fine with the exception of circumcision, which is an act related to the physical body, how much more should they be fine with a man's whole body being healed? And then Jesus concludes with an exhortation about their lack of discernment in judgment, and he tells them to quit judging with superficial judgment. Based on appearance, but instead make your judgments on the basis of of righteousness. But this is what we do. And this is what they were doing. Man looks on the outward appearance. And that's all we can do. That's all we can do. But we better be careful not to make these hard, fast judgments based upon things we do not know. In other words, we are not to question or try to figure out the motives or impugn others for motives that we do not know why they did certain things. We can judge them righteously on the basis of what they did, but we need to be very careful about this whole idea of judging. You know, Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged. He's talking about superficial, hypocritical judgment. In other words, we're not to hold other people to a standard that we are not willing to put into practice. Hypocritical judgment is the thing that Jesus talked about. Look, the whole Christian life, there's, there's judgment and judging that has to go on in the Christian life. Looking at things for what they are, comparing them to Scripture, making a judgment about the lives of other people based upon what they do and what they say. That's all part of the Christian experience. But these people are unregenerate hypocrites. Jesus had his harshest words for people like this. The Pharisees, he called them whitewashed tombs. Whitewashed tombs. Full of dead, men, dead men's bones. You have a really nice tombstone. It's been whitewashed and it looks really good. But inside the grave are just dead men's bones. Looks good on the outside, but what, it's, what is it like on the inside? And so we have to be very careful and judicious about this whole idea of judgment. He says, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. How do we judge with righteous judgment? This goes back to the truth which we have in our possession in the Word of God. We make our judgments based upon Scripture. That's where we hang our hat, on Scripture. 
And this is exactly what Jesus is instructing them to do, although they are calling him names. They're plotting to eventually put him to death. Jesus is starting to make this personal. Just is Jesus is exactly who he said he was. But just like today, these people were blinded by their sin. I guess I shouldn't be amazed by this, but I still am <laughs> to a degree. The, the absolute anti-God, anti-Bible sentiment in the world today. Maybe it was just veiled when I was younger. Maybe it was still there. The hearts of people are the same. But it is so out there today. It is so overt I mean, we lived in a neighborhood where I don't know that anyone else on the street would name the name of Christ. But there wasn't this outward rebellion against God where they would say and do all these things. There was a respect level for our faith. We tried to be good witnesses in our neighborhood. I tried to tell our, my friends about Jesus. Today, there's this in-your-face, anti-God, anti-Bible sentiment, and it's everywhere we look. And I'm telling you, I think about this all the time, and if you're older, and you have kids, and you have grandkids, I'm sure you've thought of it. Our kids and grandkids are growing up in a world that is completely different than the world we grew up in. The lines have been drawn in the sand. And so we need to teach our kids the truth. We need to be in the lives of our kids. Do not take it for granted. We're to train up our children in the way they should go, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And if you're a grandparent, you need to be an active part of your grandkids' lives, pointing them to the truth. Because the world is in their face. And the world is in our face every single day. And I live in a little bit of an insulated environment because I'm a pastor of a church. I pastor people that believe the same thing that I do. But it doesn't mean that I don't have interactions with people in the world, but I respect you all who go out and live in the trenches and go to work with other people who who have no desire whatsoever to honor God. And yet you are there as a light shining in the darkness. I mean, I've worked in secular employment. I know what that's like. Pastor Flip and I both, for quite some time, worked in a secular environment. We know what that's like. But it's getting worse and worse and worse. And so I have a lot of respect for those of you who are shining the light in the darkness. You are a demon. You have a demon. Satan is our adversary. And then, in fact, that's what the word means. Satan means opponent or adversary. He is the prince of the power of this world, and he and his demons are actively seeking to propagate lies, which the masses are buying, by the way. They're buying it. And we're thinking, how in the world? Really? 
This, 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 this is so far from the truth. Very sad. But you know what the solution is? It's not us being good people in the workplace. It's not us being good neighbors, even though we should be. It's not us being nice. It's us giving the truth. Just like Jesus is doing right here. To give people the truth. It's the truth that has the power. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The Bible is true. Sharper than any two-edged sword. It cuts right to the heart. It's what the Spirit of God uses to draw man to himself. Or to draw man to God. It's what the Spirit uses. He uses the truth to do that. So Jesus, he decides ultimately to go down to Jerusalem. He goes into the temple with a double-barrel shotgun, and he gives them the truth. This is what the world needs. This is what we need. We need exposure to the truth. And then we don't just soak it in, but we live it out. Lord, thank you for your your word, the truth. Thank you for this amazing account here of Jesus as he teaches in the temple against all these people who oppose him. And yet he stands hard and firm on the truth. And Lord, may we do the same in this life. Not unkindly. We want to give the truth in love. We want to love people. We want to love our neighbors. We want to... uh, you know, exude the love of Christ as we live in this life, this difficult life that you have um, allowed us to live in. And yet, we know we have the serum. We have the prescription for people that are sinners. And it's the gospel. It's your word. So may we be bold in our proclamation of it. Thank you for saving us from our sin, which we do not deserve. We're so grateful. We thank you and we love you. In the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord.